and I do remember very distinct memory of saying to her, I'm dyslexic. And she said, no, you're not, you're stupid. A story is change brought about by conflict. And if you don't have conflict, if you don't have change, you don't have a story. Right. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Joe. Hello, Joe. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. It's <laughs> Thanks a, for having me here. Uh, my pleasure. My pleasure. I mean, it's it's in a, in a way, you know, it's less generosity when someone comes around your house to do something for you. Especially like, <laughs> you know, you've you, you've been the nicer person in this in this dynamic. So the first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? We met at the Spark London. I believe it was the Education Stories evening that you were you were hosting at Exmouth. That's it was right. Exmouth Market Theatre. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was hosting a, a night of education stories for the Steve Sinop Foundation. That's right. Which actually is a really cool organisation I think people should check out. But I didn't know that bef- going in. I, I, I knew that I know that from working with them, but I didn't yeah. know that before I, I met them all. Uh-huh. One of the things I like about them as an organisation is that they are not about going into other countries and telling them how to do things. Yeah, right. They're about looking at how different cultures do education and what do those different cultures, different people need mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, to provide them with better education and to be led by people from those cultures to, and by the children in terms of the way that they're educated. So that was really interesting to sort of work with them and talk to them. And they got me to sort of host this night. They provided most of the, the speakers. Yeah, right. We, we provided a couple uh-huh. of extra people. I mean, members of the Spark team told stories because education is something that is close to Spark's heart, but maybe also a complicated relationship with education is quite yeah, close yeah, to absolutely. Spark's heart. Absolutely. And well, it's something that's, um, you know, everybody has an education experience, don't they? Whether that be good, bad, fulfilling or not, you know. So it's something that... Even if you had no education, that's a story story about education. So it's a a great topic for Spark, but also Joanna Yates, who is the woman who started Spark, uh, she's dyslexic. And in a way, one of the things that Spark is, and she told that story on the night that you also told your story. That's right. One of the things... It is is that Spark kind of came out of her dyslexia in a way that that she didn't know that until she went to a storytelling night that words were her thing. Yeah, um, right. Because yeah, yeah. she was dyslexic and in school they weren't. She was told they weren't. When she went to school, maybe it'd be different now. I'm not sure 100%, but it probably would be a bit different because people know a lot more about dyslexia. But yeah. certainly back then it was a very different kind of thing and she didn't feel like words were for her and then telling stories taught her that they that they are and that's a great kind of central message behind spark i feel like because one of the things that spark does is get all kinds of people to stand up on stage and tell their story and people who don't feel probably before they went to that night that the stage was for them that they were allowed to talk and tell people stuff it took me a few times it wasn't Spark that I discovered first it was was The Moth um, which I discovered when I was um, I was living in very lucky to be living in New York a few years back about five, six years ago now I guess Uh, and a friend of mine who knew that I was into writing and, and writing memoir put me onto it and I actually I tried to go to a few moth nights but they were so popular 
They were right. literally like the first one I got to, yeah. I thought, oh, you know, I'll get there half an hour before doors open. And they were queuing all the way around the block for it. And it was you know, January or something. And, the, you know, the queue just wasn't moving. So there was, it was clear people weren't getting in. The venues they have aren't that big, but it, it, it's very popular. But, but I, I got into listening to the podcast quite a lot. I did get to one event, which was a ticketed event at the Cooper Union. Uh, which was this very grand hall that Abraham Lincoln had spoken at, you know, many years ago. So it's a good speaking hall, but it was expensive. The tickets they did obviously become quite a, you know, right. a victim of their own success, really. Yeah. But it was great, and I, I got into listening to the podcast regularly, um, and just loved hearing real life stories from from you know everyday people, really. So I, um, when I moved to London a few years ago, I thought, well, there's got to be a got to be a version of that here so I, I sort of tracked it down and found the spot yeah. and, and just went along never really with a view uh, at first to to telling getting up and telling a story myself I just I came along to the few of the nights uh, I came to went to a couple in Brixton a couple in Hackney that I think you were probably presenting yeah, actually I host on the second Monday of every month in That's Hackney what, Attic yeah I felt the spark I felt uh, <laughs> you know I, I went along each time and saw the theme and thought oh you know I don't know really couldn't really think of anything and then I sat there through a few stories and you go bing there right. you go I do have a story for this so I kind of wish I'd put my name down in the first place right. so, so eventually I kind of plucked up the courage because I mean similar to, to Joanna really words were something that were always a, a, a problem for me in terms of, of, of both in writing and in public speaking which is which was I kind of got over or conquered the writing thing through through quite a long story but um in in kind of my late late 20s and the last kind of thing for me was the whole public speaking aspect which is a i've read is an aspect of dyslexia where you you, you do have trouble with that sort of thing and and i i'd kind of avo- avoided public speaking dreaded it almost since being at uni i think the last time i'd, I'd actually stood up in front of a room of people was would have been like a presentation at the University of Teesside sixteen years ago or something <laughs> like that, you know. <laughs> there was a theme where I thought oh, it was it was nature. I think it was experiences with nature, and I thought, well, I I I've definitely got a story for that one, so I'm going to go along. I took a friend along with me who who kind of wouldn't to, to kind of make me not chicken out yeah. sort of thing when they came around saying, you know, do do you the one to talk? She was like, yep, he does. <laughs> Get your name down straight away. Um, you picked wisely. That's a good. That's a yeah. good, a good supportive friend. <laughs> <laughs> in, in, if, you know, if that's their brief, make yeah, sure yeah. I do this. Make sure I actually yeah, do it, yeah. yeah. So I got up, told the story. It was a story about um, hiking in Peru and, and having a close encounter with a condor. Um, and it's one I've written about before. And, and it's a story that I'm quite fond of. And I, I still, I, I, I look back on that particular day in my life and think that was yeah that was something that was a story I'll be telling for <laughs> till I'm a, a till my ripe old age really right so it was good to get up there and get it out and 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 not like cock it up which is just what I thought I was going to do right like, I'm going to get up there I'm going to blank I'm going to overrun because you know you get your five minutes and that's it and it was uh, I got up there and uh, it was great I really enjoyed it you know and and um I had one of those moments where I did realise that the entire room was looking at me and li- like, listening, and listening to me. Yeah, yeah, so it's like, okay. But it's, it's one such- of those things where I'm a firm believer in um, just doing stuff. If you're afraid of it, just get it, just do it. Because once it's happening, you've got to kind of thing. Definitely with you know? Spark. 
I mean, definitely with Spark, I always say to people, you know, just get up and do it, and you'll be surprised. Like, it's, it's, yeah, some, sometimes people's first story is a bit shaky. Sometimes yeah. that's the case. But actually, much less often than people think. Yeah. Often their first story is, is really powerful, and like, because they've never had a room full of people listening to them before. Yeah. And, you know, when you try to tell your story, you, because you've got an audience there, you very quickly realize what bits you need to fill in. Yeah, like that's another thing people always do. They say, "Oh, I've got a, a, a two-minute story. It's not going to be five minutes. It's going to be really short." Yeah. And they'll always go over over time. Yeah, yeah. Because they they don't know what they don't, they think. Oh, yeah, I've got this anecdote, but they don't realise that. Of course, to tell that anecdote, you have to explain loads of stuff to people that they don't know about. That's you. it. And five minutes yeah. is is not a great length of time. No, it's not big. <laughs> it's not big. I mean, I managed. To, I think I've overrun every time. I've done. I've done. <laughs> I think four stories at Spark Nights now, including the one um, the Steve Sinnott like the, the education story but you had one. a bit more time but a little bit more yeah, time yeah. for that and that's the only one that I got in on, on <laughs> got in the right time I think all the others I've overrun I mean there was one in particular um, which was a story about it, I think it was one about uh, riding a motorbike around Cambodia which was the first time I'd ever ridden a motorbike right uh, and I heard the glass go because they ding they ding a glass to tell you you've right. got like so this a, was in Brixton right? this was in Brixton yeah, yeah. yeah. and the, the glass went and I was like Really? Because <laughs> like I'm a, I'm just getting through the preamble here, right. you know. So I was like, right, and that that did make me feel really nervous because I suddenly became very aware, acutely aware of the fact that not only was time running out, time was running out very very quickly. Right. So I, I kind of felt like I had to kind of just rush through the end of it. Well, that's the thing because there's often there's stories within stories. Yeah, can, exactly. There's about five different ways you can tell the story. That's it. There's yeah. like the bit before was a story, and the bit after was a story, and you kind yeah. of have to make all these decisions. And I've definitely. Like I try to tell a new story every month at the Hackney Attic because I, I I think it's only fair to be the first one on if you're the host because I feel yeah. like that means because nobody wants to start a story. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've done it when I've put other people on first and it it's just not fair to them or fair yeah, like so yeah. it's better if I tell a bad story that I haven't managed to to make it as interesting as as I'd like. Absolutely, that, to, yeah, to, yeah. To warm it up, um, but it's good to see other people get up there and do it because it makes you think. Okay, I can do that. Right, that's the idea. If I if I do a bad story I'm demonstrating that it doesn't matter if you do a bad story yeah. and if I do a good story it's a great warm up for the night Absolutely. so either way I win but also if you're, going, <laughs> if you're going along to the night and you're planning to tell a story you, if you end up like don't ask to go last don't ask to go in the second half because right. you, you, your nervousness is going to build up and build up this is what I've learned right people do that and yeah, I always yeah. respect their wishes and sometimes that can be really complicated and sometimes people don't make the best choices like I had um, once at Hackney um, somebody said, oh, I mean, my story's a really big story, so could you put me on last? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I put them on last, and I, I wish I hadn't, because it was a really sad, dark story about suicide and things like that. Yeah, which, right. Of course, there should be a space to talk about, yeah, and yeah. Spark's a great place to talk about that it stuff. It really is, yeah. But maybe not to end the night. Yeah. Like, <laughs> just to, 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 to leave people in a really dark place is not is not ideal. Like, I, I always try, if I can, if I've got yeah. if I've got some option, if I know if, if you what someone's going to be like, I'll, if you can end I'll try it on and laugh. end on, a, on someone who's going to, yeah, at least be positive, or like a, yeah. someone who I know is going to, going to be comfortable on stage and not like end it with a, an awkward kind of uh, experience for somebody um, but it's hard to know because it's an open mic you never know what's going to happen and sometimes yeah. you may have told you know 
15 amazing stories in a row but the 16th will be the one where it just goes wrong for you yeah that absolutely yeah yeah and i've you know i've told the same story and it's gone terribly and told the same story and it's gone well have so. you ever had a, like a head blank on stage yeah i have yeah. that quite a lot yeah really? i have that as a host quite a lot but I, I feel like i'm okay with that now because my stage persona and it's my real personality too yeah but is awkward and like and uncomfortable in acknowledging that yeah so if i blank i kind of go oh god you know i've blanked and ask you know maybe i ask yeah, the audience yeah. or maybe i or and maybe i good. just and talk it, while i'm working it out and, and it, that helps the people who are coming up next as well i i think you know if the host seems a bit seems slightly nervous a bit it's like okay <laughs> yeah, this, this right. is this is fine you know yeah, <laughs> this yeah, is yeah. not um you know well also everyone's got their own energy their own way like i am uh, nervous and a bit scatty but that doesn't mean that the stories I tell um, aren't going to really engage people because not at all and, and that's the great thing like, yeah, yeah. there's some people who are so polished and slow and yeah, every yeah. word is really well thought out and that's brilliant too and yeah. then there's people all over the place there's people who are reliving the experience there's yeah. people who are looking at that from a distance and being really mm-hmm. kind of uh, not novelistic in the way that they look at their own life, you know. Yeah. It, that's great, but all of these, all of these stories coming together is, is what makes it magic. I think absolutely. Like, and of course, you've got people who are telling stuff that are, are, are just quite personal, right? Or quite, you know, quite sad that it might be hard for them to speak about in in just normal life, let alone in front of a, a, a room full of strangers. Right. You know? But I think the time, the one that I got. I think it was a lot to do with the timing was when um, Charlie put me on second (laughs) in Brixton. So Charlie's the host of Brixton. Yeah, yeah. And she was like, you know, where do you want to go? I said, I guess I'll go near the beginning. Like, not not absolutely first, but sort of near enough. So I went up second. So I didn't have that kind of half an hour of of, of trying to enjoy the other stories while at the same time trying to go through my own story in my head without... Right. You know, I've got to make sure I've mentioned this bit and... Uh, like getting more and more nervous that's another good it. reason it's good for, if I'm going to tell a story at my uh, when I'm hosting it, that's another really good reason for telling the first story because you're right when, you, when you're going to tell it later yeah. you, you can't help but go over it in your mind that's it then you can relax and you relax. want to be focusing on the other stories so, exactly because yeah. there's some great stories and that's the that's the great thing that's why, why I love going along to them it's not just so I can stand up and tell, regale someone with a uh, you know, story of my my extravagant travels or whatever. Or uh, I, I want to hear other people's stories, and you, and you hear some absolutely beautiful stories. You hear some very funny stories. Yeah. You hear some sad stuff. I mean, it's, it's, it's great. It's, it's a complete much, mixed bag every time, right? As well. And it's pretty much an un, a, a hard to fail formula. Like I've never really known any Spark Night not have you know at least five amazing stories that have stuck with me yeah right and then that's that's um that's a low number not yeah, yeah quite often it's much much more than that yeah and and so you know it really i always say to people um if you go to a music open mic if you go to a poetry open mic uh yeah a comedy open mic you'll get like a small percentage of good and a large percentage of bad or mediocre. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yes, I, there's, there's still some value in going to those nights because you get to see the gems and you get people get to, exp- you know, try things out. I'm all supportive of those nights. But an open mic storytelling night is the opposite percentages. You, you, yeah. get, you, you get a small percentage that doesn't work for whatever reason, but the vast majority does work. And actually just people being themselves and talking to an audience on stage is such a I don't know it feels it's strangely a radical experience isn't yeah. it? like it's like it's, it's very un unlike most of our lives like I like the fact that in the breaks uh, people talk about stuff yeah. to strangers yeah yeah like there's no small talk 
no, as no, partner all, after yeah. it started. There's no small talk. There's like, oh my god, I remember when this thing happened to me. Like people, yeah, talk, yeah. Like that, you know, it's a great night to come along on your own to as right. well. You know, it just um, and I, I think I heard it described as. Um, so when you're sitting on the tube and you're seeing the strangers around you wondering what their lives might be like, and that that's very much what it is, because you know it's they're often on a, usually on a Monday night, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So you get people come straight from work, yeah. and it's like you're in a room full of full of strangers. You tell a, a few people tell stories, and all of a sudden, all those barriers, those normal barriers that we have in in, in certainly in big cities like like London, you know, you wouldn't just sort of start telling stories to someone on the tube or just start, right. start having a chat with someone. But once you've done that it's all of a sudden you feel very much that there are no barriers and you just chat away with people well, that's it's, the, the, it's, it's, it's a really great I thing mean, that's the interesting thing i mean it's, it's you know we, we began as spark london we're now spark true stories because there's a spark bristol there's yeah. a spark preston there's a, a there's been a spark glasgow anyone's welcome to start sparks wherever you are yeah um but but like London's a great place for it because yeah. of the of that kind of fact that it's called Spark London, but there's hardly anybody who gets on stage who's actually from London. Yeah, like, exactly. like yeah. you know, like for, for, you know, there's there's a you know, you'll hear a lot of stories from people who are travelling through town and they've gone yeah. to the storytelling nights. You get a lot of Americans, Canadians, but also people mm. from you know all all parts of the world that, that you know uh, come along. But you've also got like London's a place where everyone's come. A lot of people. There's, of course, there's authentic Londoners. Yeah. But there's, there's a lot of people who've come from. You know, I, I wasn't born in London, for example. No. I mean, everyone's from, you know comes down from the north, comes yeah. to, from Scotland. They're all there. So actually, you hear hardly. You know, you hear some London accents, but 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 also you hear the whole country's accent, the yeah. whole, whole world's accents. That's why a city like London is such a great place. Right. You, you, you have this. Um, um, I hate to use the phrase melting pot, but it's it's right. what it is. It, and it's it's um, you get a city of this size, uh, and New York's very New York's where it sort of started yeah. really that's yeah. where storytelling nights like spark really started mm-hmm. and again it's the same thing yeah. you know and, and even people who were born in london will also be often be second generation from yeah. a different place exactly. as well so there's there's all sorts of kind of great things about that and also what i like about spark is that you do also get you know authentic whatever that means working class londoners also yeah. coming in um and so you do get like one of the you know, my, my favourite thing to always say about the Hackney Night is pretty much every month a whole room full of people have to listen to um, Lizanne, who's a woman who drives vans. Right. And all of her stories about how much she loves vans and cars <laughs> and, like, her whole life. is. Like, she told a story about... Um, you know, Christmas as a child, and it still involved vans and yeah. cars. Like it's just, it's it's her <laughs> life in a beautiful way. Um, and I just like the fact that everyone has to listen to her telling a story about that yeah. every month. And I'm not saying that her stories aren't good to listen to; they are. But even if they were terrible, um, the the idea of a whole room full of people just having to pay attention to somebody that they never think about, like yeah. people don't even really think that there are women who drive vans yeah. who care about cars, exactly. let alone you know people who've like lived their whole lives doing that <laughs> her stories show people stuff that they don't have to think about mm-hmm. so yeah you came along and did a story about education that's I right guess you yeah. contacted joe in yeah advance. i um i basically yeah i actually pitched that story to her right. so i saw it advertised way, way in advance and i thought i generally i come along to the spark nights and i tell i've this all the stories i have told have been about my my, my travels because that's generally where the most interesting things that have happened to me right. where the best stories have come from right. uh, and I have spent a hell of a lot of time sort of travelling I, I, I spent a good I'd say probably eight years of my life where I didn't live in the same place for more than three months and yeah I garnered a lot of a lot of interesting stories 
and got into writing as a result of, of kind of doing that. But when I saw the education stories come up, I thought that A, it was not just a chance for me to tell something different to the, what I would usually tell at a spark night, but it was also something that I thought I had a genuine sort of good contribution to, to offer as well. And a story that's... That, that, yeah, that means quite a lot to me. Really. Right, I mean, yeah. it's a personal story. Yeah. Like, you're, when you're having stories that are about travelling, they're kind of action stories. Yeah, or exactly. they're like kind of adventure stories or whatever. Yeah. They're, they're great, and they're, you're the main protagonist, so they are yeah. your story. Yeah. But they're not about you changing or growing necessarily, although you may not find that but within they, they, them, of course. They, they, that's kind of what I do look for in a story. Yeah, right. uh, Especially if you're going to write, because, you know, a lot of these stories I've written before and they, I may have published them as a blog or they've been published elsewhere and there's generally an aspect of learning in there about yourself because you know it's something you learn quite early on if you if you want to be a travel writer unless you know you're just writing guidebooks or something like that if you want to write travel memoir or if you want to write any kind of memoir essentially if you want to write about life is you, you've got to find um, what was the old thing my teacher used to say a story is change brought about by conflict right and if you don't have conflict if you don't have change you don't have a story right essentially I mean we talk, we, we teach you know pretty much that in inspired yeah. workshops in probably different words I mean what we what we're always talking about is you know a story has to have stakes it has yeah. to really matter to you yeah, yeah. when you're telling it otherwise that's the then, same thing yeah because you're not touching into the universal voice there's no universal theme there so people aren't really going to be like interested in it more than anything you right. know they're, they're, they're not going to be you know you could just go and tell someone about your holiday to to, to you know Lanzarote and the, the, the food was nice well something. that's the really interesting yeah. thing about universals as well one of the things that doing spark has taught me and I, I always like to say I guess people have heard this a few times on the podcast but is that the more specific you are in your story the more universal it becomes yeah like because because when you're talking about the exact things that happen yeah and you're tr- feeling stuff right and, yeah. yeah and so the universal stuff is like sadness yeah. or stress or worry or whatever fear. it is yeah. fear like someone can be telling a story that's you know about their childhood in Africa and it can really touch uh everybody because you understand what it's like to be a child and you know even if you've never had that experience similarly someone can be telling a story about their childhood in Essex yeah. and it'll touch someone from Africa's yeah, yeah. Uh, life exactly like, that's where the universe yeah, yeah. come from being, being as specific about our differences as possible mm-hmm. really weirdly like I found the most successful when I say successful the stories that I've written that are the better ones or the ones I've enjoyed or got the most out of or have had more or had published are the ones the situation I've written about has either made me absolutely terrified at the, at the time of it happening or made me feel really sad you know right. but or provoked some sort of very deep emotion in me that stuck with me or maybe not necessarily f- sad but giving me an emotional reaction I wrote a blog piece uh, years ago now that won a, a national competition and got me an opportunity to write for a travel company for their blog and they sent me off to these like fancy holidays um, to, to, I went to Thailand, Morocco I did a Caribbean cruise writing for their blog which was a shock to me because the story that I'd written was about me hiking in Peru and meeting a, a, a young a 14 year old lad on a high mountain pass who was selling Coca-Cola and the, the conversation that I had with him and that was it. That was the story. The, the encounter that I had, uh, I remember walking away after meeting this lad, walking down this mountain. It was a very high mountain pass. It was one of the, one of the more treacherous ones on a, a, a range in, in the Andes in Peru. And um, I walked away from that and just burst into tears. 
and and sort of staggered down the mountain, kind of like sob- sobbing to myself. Right. Well, I didn't really know why at the time, and and it and it kind of took me, but but I knew at that moment that I thought that's the I, I did come here looking for something to write about, and I think I, I've just found it just with this little lad. And I wrote that story and just kind of put it out on a blog and sort of didn't really think much more about it. Um, and then somebody somebody sent me a link to a competition. And it was just, you know, publish a blog and send it to us. So I did it, sent it off, thought nothing of it. It was with the Package Holiday Company, so I thought right. it was, it's going to be of no interest to them, but, you know, you, you do these things, don't you? Yeah, um, definitely. And then six weeks later, I got an email saying that I'd won and would I like to go to Thailand in a few months and work with them for the next year on their on their blog. <laughs> I mean, it's funny, isn't it? What what things get us to where? You yeah. know, I know, yeah, absolutely. You know, I've sent off so many ridiculous things, thinking nothing will come of it. Yeah, and occasionally things do. Yeah, yeah, and it, it it's always a bit baffling when they do because you you don't expect them to. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that actually that came along at a time when I was. I remember getting the email. I think I was selling posters in Germany, which is was a job that I did for quite a few years before I decided I needed to start settling down because I'm getting a bit old. <laughs> <laughs> they used to gallivant around Germany selling posters at universities for three months at a time, working very long hours and sort of not really having any social life or going home for any of that time. And that was that would then pay for my life for the next sort of three months or so, um, which I would go off and do lots of travels and adventures and so on. And I'd kind of get into the point where it was a few years down the line, I was thinking, I didn't really didn't want to do this anymore. don't really know where my life's going. Don't really, don't really feel like I'm any good at anything. You know, the wrong, the writing, I'm sort of chipping away at the writing, but nothing's really happening. And then I got this email through and I was like, oh, okay. All of a sudden the validation comes along yeah. again. And you're like, right, okay, maybe I am onto something here. Yeah. Um, validation is very useful. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really is. Um, but I mean, so... Right, so you, you, so you, the story that you told at the education night, yeah. um, was kind of about why you didn't think you'd grow up to be somebody who uh, could do anything, could do all of the sorts of stuff we're talking about. Yeah, so, yeah. So what was what was your what was your educational childhood like? My childhood education was was just like having my confidence and faith in my own intelligence and or ability to to, to sort of do anything as a as a, a successful human being completely kicked into touch by, by the teachers, basically. Nice. Um, from f- a fairly early point, I think, really, looking back at it, I must have been around seven or maybe eight years old at, in middle school when I was really struggling with uh, keeping up with class, particularly with, like, my handwriting was was awful. Not just awful, but actually quite a painful experience. I still do struggle to write by hand. You might have noticed earlier, I just twist the page around and kind of write up right, the page. Right, right, Because I was taught to arch my... I'm left-handed, so I, I, I was taught to arch my arm around in a very awkward position so as not to smudge the page. I was getting shouted out for smudging the ink. And it's like, well, I'm, how am I supposed to not smudge the ink? And the teacher kind of physically forced my arm around and God. said you need to write like that and it's agony try it it's uh, try writing like that for yeah, sort of I mean, 10 it's minutes it's like it's <laughs> for listeners it's very it's very yeah it's it's not a natural way to hold your arm yeah at all yeah so i'd need to be i mean even now i i, I struggle to write on a on a click like say like on a clipboard you've got the clip at the top so it's like well how do i get my arm my hand around that oh, really? so you know i used to dread field trips at school for that very reason it's like well i'm, I'm gonna have to write on a clipboard here and you can just nowadays, if if I do have that, I just 
again, I flipped the clipboard upside down and write from the top, and I don't have this metal clasp in right. the way. Or if, if I write in my notebooks, I, tw- I twist them upside down, page to page, so the, the ring binder isn't getting in the way right. of my, my hand, that, that sort of thing. So, yeah, I had that problem at school. I was... Having a real rough time at school, and I, I obviously that was I was desperately behind in class uh, with writing. Reading was slow. Struggling with maths because I, I don't know how they do it these days. But when I was at middle school, we st- first started doing the times tables. It was all on tapes, so you'd sit in a room and they'd put a cassette on, and it would be someone going through the times tables, and you would have to sit there and write it down as these tapes were going on. Right. And I, I was lost after, you know, the most simple of them. I was, I was really struggling to keep up um, and getting very depressed. I mean, depression was, was like a big thing for me um, as was a kid. At seven? At seven, seven, yeah. seven years old, I mean, yeah. That's something people aren't, don't know that, <clears throat> don't, don't often think about, like depression in, like, Preteens, but yeah. totally, I, you know, you're not the first person I know who've, who's talked about being depressed in school. I mean, it, yeah. it seems desperately sad to me because, you know, the few my, the few years of my my childhood that weren't uh, full of depression were the ones really? when I was preteen. <laughs> so I, I kind of feel like, you know, if I'd have been depressed then too, Jesus. Yeah. But I, but yeah, I mean, it's an early time to be depressed, but yeah. it, it definitely happens. Yeah, and, yeah. Because you, know, you, yeah. you know, you're at an age where you 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 just everything's a learning experience and you, you go to school every day and that's supposed to be teaching you how to, you know, about the world and how to, how to, how you're going to, where your place in it is going to be. Right. Um, and I was going there every day and going, well, I can't do any of these things. I, well, I'm str- not that I couldn't do them. I'm struggling to keep up with everybody else. I was one of the last kids at school to be able to tie his own shoelaces. <laughs> like they had to get a, one of the, one of the girls would come and tie my shoelaces at first school you know, uh, and that was kind of humiliating for me. Yeah, um, I imagine. And yeah, so my parents actually got um, a independent um, psychologist to come to the school and 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 speak to me. The school didn't organise it. Um, they got this guy in. I, st- I remember it very clearly being taken out of class, or and I think it was out of class. I think it was during a possibly during like a playtime sort of thing. I went to a room with this guy, and he he diagnosed me as being mildly dyslexic. That is, it was never actually addressed. So he he wrote a letter of recommendation that my parents, as my mum tells the story, sent on to the headmaster at school, at my middle school, and he just didn't do anything about it. So they chased it up, and he claimed he'd never received the letter, and they sent it again, and he just insisted he'd never received these letters and just completely ignored the situation. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) At the time, my parents were uh, going through a divorce, uh, I was second youngest of five kids, so there was quite a lot going on at home. Right. All the t- siblings were teenagers with their own issues and so on. And I was also a very quiet, very quiet, very shy kid. So I wouldn't kind of come home and say, I've had a terrible time at school today. I would just come home and not say anything. Well, it's hard yeah. to say that when your you know, parents are splitting up as well. I mean, yeah. I, mean I, I may have said that my, my preteens were the, the best times, but probably from eight, they got more complicated. And that definitely during those years of my mum and my stepdad splitting up, you know, you didn't talk to them about anything yeah. because they were just having the shittest time. You yeah, knew, exactly. yeah, you knew yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. You know, no, adults can't hide that from yeah. kids. So I, I wrote about this in a writing workshop in uh, in America, and and one of the reactions I got from people were, "Well, what, what were your parents doing? Where are your parents and all this?" And I was like, "That's a good point." <laughs> I thought, "Well, they just they just had a lot on, right? <laughs> you know? yeah. They had a lot on, and I wasn't coming home every day saying." 
I can't do this, I can't do that, I'm having a terrible time. I just came home and didn't say anything. I had a particularly tough time with one teacher at school, Mrs Orme at middle school, and she was quite an old battle axe, I think she was on the verge of retirement. I mean, this is like the mid-80s, so she was kind of that old school of teacher. And I guess I felt like a bit of an inconvenience to her, and I do remember a very distinct memory of saying to her, I'm dyslexic, and she said, no, you're not, you're stupid. Ugh, fuck that. <laughs> you know? Get on with it, basically. How old were you then? Uh, must have been eight or nine years old. I mean, don't yeah. tell chi- anybody <laughs> listening, don't tell children when they're eight or nine that they're stupid. Yeah. I mean, don't actually use, like, uh, it's a hard word to get rid of. Yeah. I, I certainly am a hypocrite in that I do use the word stupid and the word idiot, even though yeah. I don't approve of myself using them. <laughs> and there are certainly other words that we need to get out of the language first before yeah. you know they're not necessarily the most important to get out but they are actually very important to get out because this idea of intelligence yeah. is a real it's just bullshit it's just not true there's loads of kinds of intelligence there's exactly. loads of ways to be yeah. like treat each other with some respect and like yeah, yeah. humanity to each other like stupid just idiot they're not words to use and people who are you know have who have learning difficulties and, and things like that are even more devalued by those words absolutely you know? and to yeah, stop yeah. using them they're, to use modern parlance they're ableist but even if they're not they yeah. do damage to everyone absolutely. just get rid of them yeah, yeah. I mean and I know I'm a hypocrite. I know I I can't get rid of them. Like I've got this thing on my phone. You can you can set your autocorrect to change words, and so I I can't write the word stupid without getting autocorrect. Really, which is great. Which makes my written communication great. Yeah, yeah. But my verbal communication, it still comes out. Yeah. But yeah, incredibly irresponsible thing to say to a to a, to a child who's struggling at school. I mean, she she I'm guessing that's what she thought. You know that she didn't well, yeah, really appreciate the fact that there are other ways of of, of of thinking, and that you know some kids are going to struggle with that particular type of, of of teaching. Essentially, I've never really forgotten that that um, <laughs> I get it, particular yeah. interaction with the teacher. Right. And for me, that you know, when you're eight or nine years old, teachers are kind of. Well, they're scary, and they're also they also in your mind they know everything. Yeah. So if a teacher tells you something, that's yep. that's the way it is. Right. That, that's the that's the truth. So if a teacher tells a kid that they're stupid, that child is going to think, well, that I must be because the teacher's saying it, and she knows everything about the world, mm-hmm. and that's that is it. So for me, I, I, my my confidence, the idea of me getting through the next what seven or eight years of school with anything you know going into the adult world with with a decent set of qualifications that for me that was like out of the out of the question now I'm, I'm stupid so so there's literally no point in trying so from then on it was just a matter of counting down the days until I could legally leave school the older I got the more confident I got with with what I could get away with at right, school right. I got worse and worse and worse so by the time I hit secondary school I mean I must have been a real pain in the arse and I never brought up the dyslexia thing with another teacher again. I never, so there was no, I thought, well, I'm not going to yeah, stick okay, my I, hand I, up over that one again. Right. There's certain things I had to just figure out for myself. It's very frustrating when you can't spell simple words. So you can't get, uh, like the one word I was always struggling with was, was the different ways of spelling witch, like a, a, a right. witch on a broomstick, which way to yeah. go. And the way that I remembered it, and I can still think about it now, I can see the image in my mind, was that a, a kid next to me at school had a pen from Witch magazine and it had like a pink bubbly font uh, that said just the word witch. Um, 
and now whenever I, I, I write or even say the word which or I hear the word which bing I get this image in my mind of that right. written that way right right of that of that sign it was always a struggle remembering which way round letters certain letters went right B's and D's for example yeah so the capital D which is particularly confusing because it's the opposite way around to the small D yeah but yeah the, the it was the Debenhams D logo from, from the Debenhams um, but again it's visual imagery yeah. right? so visual. it's visual imagery yeah yeah, yeah. And that's that was that's how I learned to spell basically. Simple words. I mean, one of the things that frustrates me so much about hearing this as well is that I mean, I you know my my my, my brother's got kind of mild dyslexia, and my mum probably does too, and maybe I do, but mm. there's there's some dis- there's some discussion about that within the family, right? But also, my partner Jen works in primary school and she's a dyslexia expert to a certain extent she's done a lot of training in it she she, uh, has done a lot of work with young children to help them to manage their dyslexia and so I know there's this completely different world that you could have had now yeah like if you'd have been that seven year old kid with Jen as a teaching assistant in your class Mm -hmm. then you would have maybe had a completely different relationship with school with learning you know because you're a very you know you're an in, you're an intelligent guy. I, I, that's the ir- irony of this. Yeah. Like, you know, c- clearly, you know, you, you you know, every time I've spoken to you and hearing you tell your stories, you're very articulate. You you know a lot of stuff. You're well, interested you. in stuff, <laughs> right? And 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 that's. And I, I was as a kid as well. That was yeah, the thing. You know, right. I was like going home. I was interested in history. I'm getting these um, history magazines that have like audio books with them, and and I think what are they called like, Discovery or something like that. So I was going home and I was like, I was interested in Roman stuff and I had interests and then I was going to school and they were just being sort of squashed Mm -hmm. and it's like, well, no, you're an idiot, you can't write, so just shut up or or get out, you know? Right. (laughs) Basically, by the way, you're in detention again. Right. (laughs) So it just encourages you to just become more and more rebellious. So when you hit secondary school and you're 13, 14, and you are in that natural rebellious stage anyway, and you're like, well, why am I even here? Yeah, I mean, I I didn't go to school around that time, but that's because I was being massively bullied in in school. But but just similarly, it's very easy to get away without going into school. So I used to pick and choose by by the time it was like the two years of GCSE study time, I I picked and chose the lessons that I wanted to go to on whether or not, on on how strict the the teacher was, for example, or or how, how... or if I liked a class, if I liked a class, which I didn't really like didn't, any of them. Right, I, I liked, like I did any. expressive arts, which was great, which was which was drama and creative right. thinking, and being given a, a a group of kids being given a, a subject for the whole sort of six weeks of the term or whatever. At the very start, you're given a subject and you work out a set of performances around it, and that was fantastic. Absolutely loved that. Never missed a single one. Got like A's and B's for my performances. Got to the final round of it and I've not backed any of it up with written work because I didn't know how to do it. The teachers don't think really knew how to tell us what to write to justify it. And it was just like, oh, you you need to write it all up as homework. Didn't do any of it. I ended up getting a D. Uh, So I walked out of school with, four, I think, four Ds, four Es and an F right. with my GCSE results. I mean, another example of why assessment is bullshit as well yeah. as intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Although I realised I called you intelligent after saying that that's a bullshit idea. Um, <laughs> that's how ingrained it is, people. Um, but like, so, right, so you stopped going to school. Did you, so you, after your GCSEs, you after left GCSEs, school? Uh, yeah, I left school and I had no GCSEs. I was living in Sheffield, I grew up in Sheffield. Um, so this was the early 90s. 
uh, we had some of the worst unemployment rates in the country at the time. So it was like your your options when you left school were, I don't know what, <laughs> if you've got no qualifications, yeah. basically do nothing, or go to college. So I, w- I went to college. I went to uh, Sheffield College and I did a I did GMVQ in art and design. I hadn't done art at school. Uh, I couldn't really draw very well, <laughs> but it was. It, I thought, well, there's not going to be much writing involved in that. Right. So I went down the art route. I actually I wanted to make films. That was one thing I wanted to do. I wanted to do sort of some visual stuff, um, and I was interested in in producing videos maybe, and photography. Um, but to get onto the course I wanted to do, I had to do the I wanted to do a BTEC. Right. So I had to do the GMVQ, which was the equivalent of of, of five GCSEs. I think. Right. 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 So I did GMVQ art and design. I did BTEC in computer arts, and then I did a HND in computer animation. And just just kind of followed the art college kind of route to avoid the horror of of, of going out into the working world without any 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 uh, not only any qualifications but um, any confidence in actually being able to do a job as right. well. So I thought, well, if I can't do school, how am I going to do a job? Right. Oh, I get a job in a shop, oh, but then I'm going to have to do maths on the on the on the you know on right the in the yeah, moment yeah, yeah. and I thought I'll never be able to do that you know that's just something I, my brain isn't going to work I'm not going to be able to do that so it was that confidence thing and obviously since then I've done jobs where I've done you know I've worked retail jobs and I've done and of course you can do it you know it's just you, you have to apply yourself and you have to have the confidence to, to do it right and it's not that bad but as a 16 year old 16 to 18 year old it was the idea of it. it was just terrifying you know yeah. so yeah I avoided it I went down an art college route and just kind of scraped scraped my way through all that stuff really and so when did you discover that you were a writer um, <laughs> <laughs> well that all came about when from tra- uh, traveling going off to I mean I I'd, so I did the art college route, and then I, I went to Teesside University with a with a, a H and D. Learned very quickly; it wasn't really worth the paper it was written on. And that I'd only to do that particular sort of type of work, I was kind of like, oh, I quite like to work in computer games, maybe visual stuff. Yeah, wanted to. Um, I was always fascinated by um, special effects in films, but I didn't really choose an education path because I had a goal at the end. I did it because of what doors were available at the time. Right. And what seemed more interesting, or, or, or which I, I didn't, you know, I didn't follow. A, there was no end game going no. on there. Well, it was a, just like a lot of people. Uh, yeah, that. I'm sure. Yeah, and yeah, and I ended up living back at my mum's place in Sheffield in my early twenties, and I was on the dole for a year. It was like it was one of the probably the most depressing years of my life. Right. Uh, and then I ended up just getting a job as a civil servant and working in the Home Office at like the bottom, bottom rung of the ladder as a, as an admin assistant and working in uh, in immigration nationality directorate and. Sort of posting people passports and stuff like that and that lasted a couple of years before I realised that I, it was killing me <laughs> I had to do something but I'd always had a kind of sense of I want to go out and do I wanted to do an adventure of some sort and I had a very burning desire to sort of to travel and just see a bit more of the world I mean that's interesting from someone who's who's been shy and who doesn't yeah, feel but as confident I, as, in doing things yeah I mean, but as I grew into adulthood, yeah, yeah. that was. But as a kid, I, I was poring over Asterix and Obelix and Tintin right, comic books and right. stuff. I look back at the things that, and my dad. I was very lucky. My father read me the uh, read the Hobbit and then the Lord of the Rings to me as a child. That, that's similar to me. So I had that that quest kind right. of adventure, wanting to see what 
what's beyond the Shire right, sort of right, thing right. from quite a young age. That was that was the the kind of stories that I was interested in and the kind of films that I liked watching were were all about quests and adventures and that sort of thing. I thought, well, there's got to be something like that. Life can't just be living in Sheffield on earning nothing and just not just going to the pub once a weekend. You know, right, right, right. Going home and watching EastEnders. There's got to be more to life than that. Uh, I just didn't really know how to go about doing it. So it reached the point of of complete sort of mid-twenties, terrible depression and just having enough to um, go, out on, <laughs> go out on a complete limb. And um, I jacked it all in and I went off to... Cornwall, and I became a hair braider. <laughs> I worked in Padstow Harbour, uh, oh, wow. wrapping hair. Uh, I, know, I know Padstow quite well. Oh, do you really? Yeah. My, my, my uh, dad's ex-wife used to live in Weybridge, so we ah, okay. the yeah, yeah. Uh, Weybridge to Padstow the bike, Trail. Yeah, the yeah. bike ride. Yeah, we like, that, I love that bike ride. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's uh, a beautiful part you, of the world. For people who don't know, you can hire bikes at one end of the trail, and then you can leave them at the other, and then you can you know, obviously have adventures uh, on the on the way. Um, and so you went. Uh, so yeah, I went off and did this thing. Uh, a friend of mine who'd, who'd just been off to India and who I'd met in Cornwall, I used to do a lot of family holidays in Cornwall and started going there again as an, as an adult, um, spending my summers down there. Spending time in Cornwall always made me feel very sort of inspired to, 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 to travel. You know, you're sitting right. here watching, you're looking out to the ocean all the time. Well, someone who came up on The Lord of the Rings, you know, you've got yeah. some Tintagel. Uh, yeah, uh, all It feels like The Lord of the Rings yeah, in, yeah. in uh, Cornwall. So, yeah, and I was, I remember she came back from India. Uh, she was staying at, at, at the flat I was living in at the time. And I was like, you know, I'm going to jack this job in and go and get a job in a pub in in. Cornwall and I was going to spend the summer season there basically and she said oh you should hair braid you know you'll work for yourself you'll earn more money and I was I said well you know the old thing came back I, yeah I can't do that that's ridiculous <laughs> so oh, you know I'll teach you so I sat down with a wig I had to learn to plait I l- sort of half learned how to hair braid and then just thought well alright I'm, I'm going to just t- take a leap of faith here so I went off with a, a very minute, like about a week's worth of money and just moved to Cornwall and um, went down there and got stuck in, started hair braiding. <laughs> <laughs> well, it takes the point of being rock bottom to, to go, all right, sod it, I'll try anything to right. get out of this, you know. And, and looking back on that, that was the first step on me doing things out of my comfort zone. And finding actually, I could do them if I just applied myself. Right. So I very like my first few hair braids were horrendous, um, <laughs> but I very quickly learned how to do it and and, and managed to make a living. Um, managed to get some money saved up, and went off travelling. And it was I think it was the first sort of big trip that I did. I went to Southeast Asia, went to Thailand. You know, did the standard sort of um, backpacker trail that people do out there. And went out for I think three and a half months, but picked up a, a, a little journal thought oh, I'll start keeping a little diary maybe of, of you know it's something that you do isn't it when you're travelling people keep travel journals I picked up one from a market this, this lovely little thing with sort of a wooden cover and right. an elephant on the front and, and started sitting in my, my hut and, and like writing things down especially when I'd I spent quite a lot of time on my own travelling a little bit more off the beaten path so you'd find yourself in a kind of dark two pound a night sort of hut somewhere in the middle of Laos um, with a candle and, and no one around. <laughs> it's like, well, what am I going to do? Well, I might as well sit down and just write about what I did today. 
and it started like that. I started to write down, just writing about my experiences. I thought, you know, I didn't want to forget these things, and uh, I wanted to write home about them. So I started writing emails uh, that became quite sort of lengthy stories about what I'd been doing, and I started getting like quite positive feedback from from people. Obviously, like just not just from my family. I remember there's a guy that I travelled with, and he. I got a, like a random email from his from his sister who he'd forwarded on my email that I'd written about what the adventure that we'd done together because I guess he couldn't be bothered to write one himself. So his sister got in touch and, and thanked me for for writing this very beautifully descriptive piece and from someone who not really done any travelling herself. It really gave her an idea and a sense of feeling of what what it was like and what her little brother was up to. And that was that first little bit of affirmation that oh maybe I can write something that's worth reading by right. by somebody and I, I got more and more kind of into doing it and then I started to travel picking places to go to because I thought they'd be interesting to write about and looking for adventures that I could then write about and it kind of just escalated from there really I guess the internet was was the internet's a big thing was on the horizon yeah was yeah happening and yeah you, did you start to blog I guess yeah um it was more just emails was right, the thing okay you know Facebook I think became a thing probably on my second trip to Asia right so I started like writing I think like notes people used to do yeah, that yeah, yeah. on Facebook it was almost like a little blog section of Facebook I don't, I don't know if you really do no, it no no I don't know if you're still there yeah I mean, there used to be a little feature you could write a note and it was like a little blog piece I mean I think the the only thing is that now they've just they've just got rid of the limit on the main status so you don't yeah. have to write a note you can still write a note exactly thing. so you can just write it in, yeah. a, in, a, in a post or whatever well, it's, um, I think Facebook's a really effective way of doing that when I yeah. when I lost my last when I when I when my last job was cut in fact we were talking about this before we started recording for some reason um, I wrote a blog post about my experience of that job ending like I was working with the under fives in lots of different communities like quite deprived communities if you like yeah uh, so I was very sad about the fact that I was being taken out of those communities mm-hmm. by the the Tory government each of the last sessions I did like in my week I wrote like my feelings about that last session and yeah. shared pictures of, of the presence that they gave me that that was what made me really feel like it's easy to think of yourself as not you know yeah I'm singing songs and telling stories but you know that's just something for me it's quite easy to do it doesn't yeah. like I'm not I'm not valuable but it was seeing how valuable I had been to those groups and in their in their actual like clubbing together and giving me these amazing beautiful presents or like expensive presents when they haven't got any money like that was that was like a humbling experience yeah, so I yeah. wrote each of those down and they got shared loads yeah right you know, and, and that was like like yeah. you say that gave me the validation then to then go to the Guardian and say hey like make this into a comment it's free exactly place. you know what it was first actually it was, it was MySpace was the first ah, thing right, that started right, right. I wrote yeah, I, it was I was MySpace. In, into MySpace <laughs> yeah that was the sort of precursor to Facebook at the time right really. and it was like your own little website about you sort of introduction to narcissism like Like, I'm I'm actually I'm glad MySpace existed because I feel like I I learned a lot 
yeah. um, when I was writing stuff on MySpace. But I'm also glad that it it folded and everyone left it. Yeah. Now no one knows what that stuff was, and now I'm better at writing. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, um, but also, it wasn't just the social media aspect. It was the fact that of of, of having a computer to right, write on, right? And so it wasn't a, painful in the same. It wasn't. Pa- it was. It, it was. Like, yeah, exactly. I didn't have that physical restriction of writing with a pen and paper. But I also had something telling me when I was spelling things wrong as well. Yes. Right. So the joy of, of a spell check. Right, I love that too. Um, <laughs> and it's like, it's hard to really, it's hard to, and you know, I've learned to spell by wanting to write stuff and writing it out on a computer and going, oh, right, that's how you spell that. Right. And there's still stuff that I get wrong. I still, the, the, I, I think this is a beautiful irony that I, I can't spell editing traveller or literary <laughs> I, I never right. I never get it right well I, so I have a lot I do a lot of work um, around masculinity and uh, I can't spell patriarchy very well okay. and one time I sent an email to loads of feminist uh, publications trying to get them to pay attention to something I was doing and I misspelled patriarchy in the title of the email I'll, I'll never I'll never quite recover from the, yeah. the, the shame of that so yeah so that was a big that was a big part of it for me was being able to get over that fear of just be, of writing something that people couldn't read so you know I can write something on a computer and people can read that so yeah it went on from there and I think I hit I got to about it was when I was about I think I just turned 30 um, I just spent like six months in in India in Nepal and had a a, a wonderful terrifying psychologically disturbing however ultimately really fulfilling experience <laughs> which i think is what happens to most people if they spend a lifetime time in in india because <laughs> it's it's a place where you can't just wander about it and not have anything weird happen to you so i came back from there feeling a bit well like emaciated and exhausted and also turning turning 30 so reaching that point where like well what you know really reassessing my life and and getting i got quite severely depressed i think and I, and I thought, well, what is it that I feel so bad about? And it's like, I felt like I didn't really have a purpose or I still felt like I didn't have a use for myself in, in the world. And I thought, the, the only thing that I'm really getting anything out of at the moment is this, this writing thing. And I was enjoying the challenge of it and getting better at it. I could tell I was getting better the more that I wrote. But at the same time, I was still thinking, but maybe I'm just being completely delusional and everything I'm writing is completely shit and people are just being nice to me. Right. <laughs> I get that. So uh, <laughs> I got an opportunity. I was very, uh, very lucky to have a, a really lovely older sister who was far more successful in life than me and went off to live in America and um, offered to sublet me her apartment in Manhattan for a few months and said, you know, if you're really in a spot, you really don't know where to go next, why don't you come out to New York, live in my flat for a bit and just figure something out. So I did that and I looked into things that I could do while I was there and I found a writing school. Uh, Actually, a friend of mine put me onto this writing school that he'd been to and he subsequently became an author and he's... He's a full-time writer and stuff, but he he, he put me onto this writing school called um, Gotham Writers Workshop in Manhattan. Oh, right. uh, so I went and signed up to one of their memoir writing classes and just thought, I'll just go and give it a go and um, get it out of my system, really, and see if it's a thing or if it's not a thing and uh, then I can just move on and be depressed about something else or whatever, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I went out there and I did these classes and they were great i mean this is a wonderful thing to do i was if i very if anyone ever has the opportunity to go and live in another country and do a memoir course do it because if you want to scratch under the surface of of a place 
sitting in a room with 15 people who are writing personal stories about themselves and sharing them with them is, is going to do it. You know? Right, and I guess con- conversely, having to tell memoir to a group of people who don't have the same cultural reference points for you yeah. is really good for your own yeah, work. Yeah. And also New York, yeah. as, as, as London, is full of people coming from different places. Right. So, I, you know, in that first class, there was someone who was... Um, I mean, I've been in class with, with someone who was, who was uh, an ex-bank robber. I've been uh, there was someone writing about um, coming from a Haitian family that had, had, had immigrated and and her, her brothers getting into uh, um, you know petty crime and things like that. There was someone who had been a clown and was writing about clowning, right. you know, which is taking on a probably a more sinister. Um, Rolling in recent times, just at present, <laughs> yeah. that will hopefully be forgotten completely by the time this. Um, but yeah, and we had some and some wonderful teachers who were published authors um, who were really, really good. Who very quickly, and this was a good, another great thing for me. Said, "We're not here to mark grammar. We're not here to spell check. We're here to look at at stories, basically." Um, and I, I, I did the first class, and I remember submitting my second piece, and the the teacher writing. Uh, at the end of it, this would make a, a great a triple underlined great book, and, and that was enough for me to then think, okay, maybe I actually am onto something here. So yeah, I did that for I did a couple of those classes, and at the end of one of them, they were said, you need to find a way to motivate yourself to keep on writing once the class is finished. Because a class, if you want to get into writing, doing a class or a workshop is a great way to do it because yeah. you get little deadlines, right. you get writing exercises, and a lot of the shorter pieces that I've written have come from short writing exercises that I got in that class and then went on. And expanded into wider pieces yeah. you know write about an encounter write about a scar on your body just right, little exactly, things like yeah. that you know just to get the mind going and get you to find a story and um, yeah that just kept on giving me more and more validation so one thing I decided to do I said well I could start a blog I suppose uh, that would be something a way to to keep that motivation going once I go back and, and I don't have to submit anything I don't have a deadline so I set up a little blog it's purely as a writing exercise and I set myself a strict 500 word limit to each story to try and economise as much as I could and I thought well I'll do that for that and then I'll, I'll send them to competitions enter competitions not because yeah. you think you're going to win them just because it gives you a point right. of purpose yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think the second one I sent off for um, I won it was a Daily Telegraph um, right. the Just Back competition the Daily Telegraph yeah, yeah. weekly travel writing thing um, sent them a piece um about a trip in uh, Peru to go and see these um, uh, these sarcophagi that are on a sort of on a cliff top in 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 Peru, a remote mountainside, and a day, little day trip I did to that, where I had to get in the boot of a car to get back because the taxi was full. I mean, in a nutshell, that was the story. And they actually rang me up like a few days later. I got this phone call from someone from the post office. That was the weird thing, because their prizes sponsored by the post office it's like foreign currency <laughs> so this guy from the post office is ringing me up saying can you confirm your um you've won some money can you confirm your postcode for, for like your nearest post office and i just thought i can't believe it this someone's trying to ring me up trying to steal my identity like this is straight <laughs> up identity theft. <laughs> so i was like wait what money what are you talking about he said oh you've won the just back writing competition <laughs> i thought i don't believe it he's he's hacked my email so they know that I've sent this thing off and they're, they're, they're trying, you know, so I still wouldn't believe I didn't believe that I'd won this thing but no I, I had won it and a week later I was published in a newspaper and that was uh, that was the first time I ever had published and that was it 
then the validation was complete and I thought okay I am a writer right <laughs> finally so <laughs> yeah so <laughs> when somebody so the second question I ask everybody is, is is what do you do now so when someone asks you that question do you say you're a writer um yeah I'm a writer um but I live in London so I have to balance it out by earning a living as well <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. yeah yeah so I work in an I work in an office in central London and I try and balance my time between my creative outlets and um my my need to live in the house and right and eat food and stuff and living in a house is also something that you are sort of looking at at the moment right like yeah. housing and the the situation it is yeah well I are in in this city but also in this country but also in the world yeah absolutely <laughs> but this city is particularly bad i've just spent the last two months trying to find a new place to live i was living on a boat for the last year down on the thames near tower bridge sharing with two other people on a, a, a dutch barge and having well, not really a room more of a berth in 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 that sort of a, a double bed in a cupboard basically right. <laughs> but it's great it's you know living on the thames is a, is a wonderful thing and a walking distance to the office that i that i live in we've had to move off that boat because it's 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 knackered right for one of a better phrase I mean, you've been prepped in a way for the housing crisis in that you've lived like you've traveled all over oh yeah the world, well, so i've been living in, in huts and hotels and huts right. and, and and yeah really minging hotels and stuff for, for years on then so yeah i'm kind of used to moving around that boat's the longest i've lived any one place <laughs> for for 10 years the the 11 months i spent there um, but yeah, the last co- I've, I've actually just found a room on another boat, so I'm going to be moving back onto a boat after having a, a really depressing sort of six weeks of just of, of spending hours a day staring at the internet, looking at really, really expensive, really awful rooms, and it's just it's it's nuts. Like it's it's kind of out of control, really. What what people are, are, are charging for sure? It's absolutely crazy. I mean, I'm, you're seeing rooms that are. I saw one the other day that was three beds in one room. Two guys are already living in it, and an agent is trying to find another bloke to come and live in this room with three single beds, and he's charging a hundred quid a week for that. Uh, you know, uh, I, I've seen someone who's renting out a bit of space in the kitchen for for five hundred and ten pound a month plus bills for a, a bed in the corner of the kitchen with a curtain. So that's kind of inspired me to set up a, a Twitter account called Crap Rooms London. <laughs> my my personal um, sort of way of venting a bit of a bit of uh, frustration, but also trying to highlight the fact that there's it's it's. There's a lot of crap rooms out there, and they're really expensive. And yeah. uh, if it's something isn't done about it soon, it's going to get to the point where, unless you're on forty grand a year, you're not going to be able to live in London. Well, that's stop, right. And know. I mean, they're they're reducing social housing. They're moving families out of the city to other parts of the country for no real reason. Yeah, moving them away from their support networks. All sorts of things happening. And you're right. The people who can afford to live here. Are still living in sh- in crap rooms, yeah. And the people who have the nice rooms are, are people who are rich, yeah. And that is the reality of it, yeah, yeah. And then you have that sort of thing of like people say, "Oh, won't you go and move out a bit further?" And it's like, "Yeah, sure, okay, I can move out somewhere in zone three or four. However, I still have to get into zone one and back every day, 
which is going to cost me what 150 160 pound a month yeah but in. also not everyone in london is a, a visitor from another part of the country yeah like people have lived for generations in this in this city yeah and they have th- they have a right to this city yeah to absolutely. continue to live here yeah. i mean it's sad what's happening to the city yeah yeah and it's not just even to the houses it's the nightlife is being systematically destroyed absolutely it's yeah the, the yeah. culture is being systematically destroyed yeah uh, and yeah, and it's becoming a sort of a playground for the very, very rich, really. Uh, and a lot of the buildings that you're seeing coming up uh, are just—they're like trophies almost. You know? Right. Uh, did you read about this thing they're going to build near the Gherkin around in the city? That's going to be the same height as the Shard, uh, which is apparently is the highest uh, you're allowed to build a building in central London because the planes coming into the airport. Right. So the Shard is at the maximum height. They're going to build one across the river. That's exactly the same height uh, and the, the land is actually being bought up by a couple of palm oil uh, multi-billionaires who are sort of being hounded by Amnesty International for all sorts of terrible crimes of, to humanity and uh, the rainforest and all sorts and they want to build this enormous skyscraper but apparently they wanted to put like a Cleopatra's needle type thing on the top of it as well and it's like what is the point of that it's literally just a trophy of, of of wealth you know it's like a billionaire's playground right and it's almost like a lot of this country is kind of becoming that way anyway yeah well if we're not careful this city will basically be that yeah be be a city equivalent of one of those buildings yeah uh and you know there's there's a lot of activists out there at the moment fighting against this i mean there's focus e15 in stratford who i've i've I've, you know i went to i i visited them during their occupation there Mm -hmm. um and uh you know they've got they, they've been campaigning for years now, and they're, they, they're dogged, and they don't give up, and they're amazing people. Yeah, uh, and they, you know, there's people made theatre play out of their experience, and that's doing all right too. Yeah, and you know, not just them. There's lots of different activist groups working towards doing something about this. There's the Radical Housing Network, all sorts of people, mm-hmm. and then people like yourself, uh, c- consciousness raising yeah. like, about the, the, the how shit that. The, the housing bubble is yeah yeah i mean so there's a legitimate push back against this yeah and i hope that that will unite i mean i feel like you know housing is going to become um you know i mean i'm not the first person to say this no. nor you know it's 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 pretty much the political issue of the of the the, the decade at least of, yeah, at the yeah. moment yeah and i mean in some ways i'm hopeful in the fact that it, it has brought a lot of people from different backgrounds, different positions in society together, yeah. and that it, it's 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 so terrible that even the middle classes are suffering. Yeah, yeah. And so there's yeah. a much bigger group of people who Absolutely. can be angry and do something about this housing crisis if we don't all get turned against each other by the media, etc., yeah. etc. But my take on it is definitely less of a militant one it's more of a comedic one quite <laughs> no, <right>. absolutely right <laughs> but I think that all of these things like slot into a jigsaw but exactly and like yeah. you know people making jokes or like showing how ridiculous something is is part of a, a, a part of this whole thing I mean yeah. there's journalists writing about this yeah, stuff yeah. you know I mean not even like radical journalists you know there's people in the you know writing for the Financial Times or whatever who are, who are saying hang on yeah. this, this is a bit much now yeah yeah you know so it's an interesting moment and it's an interesting moment to, li- to try and live in this city yes it it's is it's quite a hard moment to live in this city yeah yeah for sure for <laughs> sure um, yeah so 
Uh, yeah, the whole Crap Rooms London thing just came about from showing my my my, my boatmate. I was like, have you seen these? Like, can you believe some of the rooms these people have? There was one in particular that I showed him and he, and he said you should tweet that, you know. And I thought, there must be someone out there who's already tweeting uh, Crap Rooms. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't look on it and I was amazed to see that there, was, there isn't an account out there that's just dedicated to, I mean, to tweeting horrific rooms that people are trying to charge people outrageous amounts of money to live in. Well, it's definitely a, a, like ironically a gap in the market <laughs> yeah. unlike the market that doesn't have any gaps yeah. um, but like you know yeah when you find a, a handle like that has not been taken you have to snap that up yeah. Well, yeah. for sure snapped up although I might have made a bit of a rod for myself because I now have to live up to it yeah <laughs> <laughs> well I don't have to you know I've chosen to but it feels like it's worth trying yeah yeah absolutely yeah yeah but that does mean I have to sort of look for flats every day <laughs> Right, and now <laughs> yeah. you've found one. Now I've found one, we'll have to keep on looking. Yeah, to yeah. It. yeah, I mean, you know. But it doesn't take long, like put it, it, you know, 20 minute search on the internet and you can find a crap well, room also, quickly. Also, I mean, if it takes off <laughs> and people get more interested in it, what you'll probably find is people will be suggesting crap rooms to you and yeah, you can just right. like, basically collate that information. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's been a real pleasure uh, getting better acquainted with you today. Yeah, the, likewise. The absolutely. last question I ask everybody is do you have anything to plug and i guess we've kind of slightly maybe been doing part of that in that people should check out crap rooms yeah have but, a look at crap rooms but, london but yeah what else have you got just had a featured article in a magazine called mundial which is a, a lovely little football magazine that's sort of a kind of a startup by a few guys i know who write for um sabotage times which is a um online magazine that yeah, I, I, I write for uh, i also manage their um travel twitter account sabotage travel um so yeah have a look at mundial it's a really great little mag follow sabotage travel follow crap rooms london where can they find your writing they can find my writing at uh, joemarshallwriting.wordpress.com that's where <laughs> i post links and various blogs and stuff like that um I, the whole dyslexia story is up there um, and yeah I'm on Twitter at uh, JG Marshall Wright that's right as in write with, with a pen <laughs> or in my case a, a keyboard um, yeah so you know say hello basically um, that's about it really brilliant yeah. well yeah I mean and yeah it's been really it great come, yeah it comes to the Spark London as well. Oh yeah, uh, people can find Spark at stories.co.uk, and yeah, we're, we're throwing out Twitter handles. Mine's uh, <laughs> at Goosebat101, uh, which is a ridiculous Twitter handle. That one day maybe I'll change, but it's like a I don't know, it's Catch Twenty Two, you know. It's, it's, it's like, try, trying to find an online handle for yourself, but the moment that you realise that how little an individual you are, isn't it? Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I had I made this kind of decision to stick with this terrible name just because I, I built a rod for my own back and I might as well keep it but that was like 10 years ago now yeah, and now right. I'm like uh, I don't know maybe <laughs> maybe I'll change that uh, yeah it's the moment you realise <laughs> oh right there's that many Joe Marshalls in the world right. and they're already all on Twitter by the looks well, of it I've got to the point where I'm like does Goose Fat 101 put people off actually paying attention <laughs> yeah. to what I'm saying and if it does maybe I should change it maybe I shouldn't wait till the world doesn't care about these things anymore maybe I should be proactive but yeah I mean the last thing I asked my guest to do is to say goodbye to the audience well yeah thanks for listening and uh, goodbye bye everybody <laughs> you can follow getting better acquainted on twitter at 
GBA podcast. You can like it on Facebook. www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk is one place you can find it. And remember, there are lots of ways to get better acquainted. <laughs>